some of you may be familiar with the Frog and Toad children's books. Anybody know Frog and Toad? A few folks? All right. Um, if you've been here for a couple years, you've probably heard me read from Frog and Toad a couple times. They were a favorite of mine as a kid. Uh, I learned to read using Frog and Toad. Uh, I loved Frog and Toad. Really, I, I felt like I had a relationship with Frog and Toad. Uh, I lived in this book. Because you see, Frog and Toad were best friends. And in this particular book, uh, Frog and Toad Together, which is uh, reading level two, reading with help. There's this great story uh, with Frog and Toad about the temptation of cookies. And I'm going to read it to you. So get all tucked in and snugly. Toad baked some cookies. These cookies smell very good, said Toad, so he ate one. And they taste even better, he said. So Toad ran to Frog's house. Frog, Frog, cried Toad, taste these cookies that I have made. Frog ate one of the cookies. These are the best cookies I have ever eaten, said Frog. Ding. I know a few of y'all grew up with those dings. Frog and Toad ate many cookies, one after another, which, by the way, is how I like to eat my cookies, one after another, after another. You know, Toad, said Frog with his mouth full, I think we should stop eating. We will soon be sick. You are right, said Toad. Let us eat one last cookie, and then we will stop. Frog and Toad ate one last cookie. Yet there were many cookies left in the bowl. Frog, said Toad, let us eat one very last cookie, and then we will stop. Frog and Toad ate one very last cookie. We must stop eating, cried Toad, as he ate another. Yes, said Frog, reaching for a cookie. We need willpower. What is willpower, asked Toad. Willpower is trying hard not to do something that you really want to do, said Frog. Oh, you mean like trying not to eat all of these cookies, asked Toad. Right, said Frog. Frog put the cookies in a box. There, he said, now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. So Frog tied some string around the box. There, he said, now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can cut the string and open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. So Frog got a ladder. He put the box up on a high shelf. There, said Frog, now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can climb the ladder and take the box down from the shelf and cut the string and open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. So Frog climbed the ladder and took the box down from the shelf. He cut the string and opened the box. Frog took the box outside and shouted in a loud voice, Hey, birds, here are cookies. Birds came from everywhere. They picked up all the cookies in their beaks and flew away. Now we have no more cookies to eat, said Toad sadly. Not even one. <laughs> yes, said Frog, but we have lots and lots of willpower. <laughs> Speaking for me, Toad says, you may keep it all, Frog. I'm going home now to bake a cake. <laughs> As uh, many of you over the years have surmised, because I've said it a bunch of times, 
I have an inappropriate love for Oreo cookies. I do. I really do. I love them. I like to eat them one after another. And every once in a while, someone, uh, usually from the congregation, will bring in some Oreo cookies into the office, and we all dance with delight. <laughs> and we hug and we cry. <laughs> it's a moving moment. One time last year, somebody brought in a whole bowl of cookies, a whole bowl of Oreo cookies. Uh, there were 24 of them. Yes, I counted. <laughs> uh, they were left over from something. I'm not sure what. But what I do clearly remember is that within four hours from those 24 cookies, only four were left. And guess who had eaten all of those 20? Tommy Staggs, our associate minister. <laughs> that guy, you can't, can't stop him. Okay, I, I ate 20 cookies, 20 Oreo cookies in four hours. Pause for a moment to let that sink in. <laughs> 20 cookies in four hours. Yes, I have a problem. <clears throat> I'm also aware that as soon as I share with you that I eat 24 Oreo co- 20 Oreo cookies in four hours, I have basically divided this room into kind of two camps, you know, two distinct groups. The more disciplined among you are thinking to yourselves in your self-righteous judgment, you are a vile and disgusting pig. <laughs> the other half of you, my people are thinking to yourself, that sounds awesome. (laughs) That sounds awesome. I know that devouring 20 Oreo cookies in four hours is a bad idea. I also happen to know that, and I knew this even before I ate the cookies, every Oreo has just over 50 calories each. You can look it up. Do the math yourself. He is that pathetic. I knew it was dumb to eat that many. I knew it was. And I knew it while I was eating them. But I ate them all anyway. (laughs) I knew the consequences, but I rationalized my way out of caring about the consequences. I knew them, but I rationalized my way into a sort of relative apathy about Oreo cookies. I said things like, I deserve this. I've had a long day. I've worked a lot of hours this week. What harm will a few Oreos do? It's my one weakness. Like, I don't eat cookies. Well, I don't eat 20 cookies often. I I rationalized it with things like, I can handle this. I mean, I have six years of graduate school. I can handle Oreo cookies. You know, you, you, you say dumb things like that to yourselves. I can handle it. I'll skip the next meal. No one will ever know until they tell hundreds of people on Sunday mornings. No one will ever know. We say things to ourselves like, it's it's my circumstances, it's it's my situation. Nobody out there, nobody else knows how hard it is to be me. 1 Timothy 4 talks about the person who lies has a seared conscience. Somebody who has a seared conscience sits and eats 20 Oreo cookies in four hours and says, I don't even care. I don't care what they do to me. I know what they do. I don't even care. (laughs) Those are the kinds of thoughts that go on in our heads when we give in to sexual sin. The kinds of thoughts that go on any sin, but today we're focusing on sexual sin and and pornography in particular. These are sort of rationalizations by which we justify our sin. 
And that rationalization process is something that goes on inside of us, fueled by anger and hurt and resentment and pain. And so we come up with these explanations that justify ourselves and our behavior, even while we know we're eating 20 cookies in four hours. Friends, many Christians, perhaps even some of us sitting here today, come to church week after week after week for spiritual encouragement and accountability, hearing from the Word of God about how to enjoy life as God has intended, only to leave. And when you think no one else is looking, you go off and bake your little cake to the side. You're 10, 12, 14, cookies in off to the side by yourself when you've been in a place like this for far too many of us there is a massive disconnect between our public lives and our private lives between what we do and say here and what we do and say elsewhere friends sexual sin we get to that place where we have a a pretty complex set of rationalizations for why this is okay for us. Sexual sin can deaden hearts, devastate families, and destroy our witness. Make no mistake, friends. That disconnect of sexual sin as a pattern in our lives can deaden our hearts, can devastate our families, and it can destroy our witness. And, And I realize as We're talking about something heavy here today. Maybe you're hearing me talk up here and uh, you're in this place and and I get it. I grew up in this life. (laughs) You may be thinking, we shouldn't be talking about this in church. Maybe you're in this place where you'd rather keep your head in the sand about it um, because you don't want to deal with it. It's, It's too big a problem. Listen, the truth of the matter is just because you may not want to deal with it doesn't mean the problem goes away. Sexual sin is rampant in people's lives. Pornography in particular, and we focus on it because it is easy to access. Pornography is not going away as a problem in our world today. Just listen to uh, some statistics I want to read to you. Um, None of these are graphic. Don't worry. But these should worry you. They should bother you. Uh, They're evidence that we cannot pretend that uh, pornography is not a problem. One in five total web searches worldwide is a search for explicit sexual content or pornography. Uh, That's actually going up. A Google Trends analysis indicated that illegal searches for underage pornography more than tripled between 2005 to 2013. That's fewer than 10 years. Total searches for teen-related porn are approximately one-third of total daily searches for pornographic websites. Listen to this one. Almost 70% of men and almost 20% of women are viewing pornography at least one time per week on average. That 20% of women is actually going up faster than the men statistic. In the last five years, the number of women having an affair outside of marriage has increased 40%. We like to think of pornography as a male problem, uh, but Facebook is the number one contributor to divorces today. Revenue from pornography is larger than all the combined revenues of all professional baseball, football, and basketball franchises. 
Listen to this one. The, eternal, the Attorney General's Commission on Pornography reported that the largest, the single largest group of consumers of pornography is boys below the age of 18. Dozens of children's characters like Pokemon, etc., Pokemon Go, Zombie Apocalypse. Dozens of children's characters are intentionally linked by porn producers to lure in children. Most teenagers view porn while they're doing their homework. 80% of parents report they have no idea how to monitor their kids' online activities. And only 23% of parents have rules about what their kids can do on the computer. We could go on and on and on and on with statistics about how problematic this is. If the consequences for you aren't enough reason to come clean and deal with pornography, which they should be by themselves, consider the consequences of those around you and the consequences for our children. Friends, it will destroy the hearts of our children if we are not wise. I want you to watch this real quick. Daddy has another gift for you. What is it? You'll see. Whoa, no way! Finally! Honey, really? I thought we were going to wait until next year. I think he's ready. Oh, it's the new one. You are going to love that thing, guy. Besides, he's the only kid in this class without one. Ma, ma, it's the new one. Oh, ma. Dad, please it right now. Son, you can use that whenever you want. Thanks, Dad. I love you, kiddo. Go have fun with your phone. Come on, guys. Put together those statistics that I read and the point of this video, and you know what those mean? You know what those statistics and the point of this video show us? (laughs) They prove that pornography is now the number one method of sex education for children today. I mean that factually. Not merely metaphorically or as a concept. (laughs) Put the statistics together, and it may not be for your family, but it is for somebody's. And it probably is more for your family than you know. The number one method of sex education for our children today is literally pornographic material. That's the world we're living in. If you're over the age of 40, this is not the innocent world you remember from your youth. That world's gone. And don't deceive yourselves. Green County ain't no different. (laughs) The Internet is here. I don't know if you knew that. We have the interwebs in our pockets. And while we're at it, by the way, there are now more millennials age 18 to 35 than there are baby boomers. The world you remember is gone. 
to pretend that this is not problematic for the hearts and minds of those who come behind or ourselves is to live with one's head in the sand. The ease of the access of the Internet has changed everything. What some of you remember as something that had to be sought out or you happen to know one kid who is now the opposite. Now it seeks out the children. Now it seeks out our kids. Now it seeks after our homes. Something that used to be kept hidden, that used to be considered culturally uh, shameful, is now actually considered fairly normal. That's the world we live in, friends. It's talked about, it's laughed about on TV, as if it's normal. Something that should be, uh, something that makes us blush and should fill us with a sense of wrong before God is flaunted as normal and acceptable. Like if you suggest that sexual behavior is meant to be kept private between a one-man-woman marriage relationship, you're the weirdo. And we live in a world where, like the prophet in Jeremiah 6 says, we no longer know how to blush. That's the world we live in. That's the world around us. That's the world that's in your kids' pockets, if you're not careful. How do we turn this tide? I'm not going to suggest today that... (laughs) The cultural revolution that's going to change the world is going to happen here today in our power. But what is in our power is to repent from sin on a personal, individual level. We want to be a place where turning from that bondage toward freedom and liberty, going from a pattern of sexual sin that keeps us from hearing God to Someone who has a relationship with God, who hears from him day to day and is growing to be who God made him. That's possible. And that can happen here. That's what we can do. So here are four steps for that for us today. And we're, spo- we're specifically talking about uh, sexual sin, uh, especially pornography. But these, these apply to all sin patterns in our lives. This applies to all sin. The first is this. I must admit, number one, that sexual sin or any sin, I must admit that sexual sin is a sin against God. We're going to look at the life of Joseph here in Genesis 39. If you want to turn there real quick, we'll also be in Judges 16 in a minute here with Samson. But we're going to start with uh, Joseph in Genesis 39. Joseph knew that sexual sin was sin against God. Jump in at verse 6. It says this. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, meaning Joseph was a young man. He had all the normal hormones a young man has. He was a good-looking guy, it says. In verse 7, after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. Joseph's master here was Potiphar, and Potiphar was the captain of the guard for the Pharaoh, for the king of the land. So, you know, Potiphar's a mega important dude, and Joseph is in charge of Potiphar's household. Everything in the household. So God had put him there for a reason. After a time, verse 7, his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, cast her eyes on Joseph. That's a, that's a, a conception in the Hebrew of, of having your eyes focused on it and not going away. And Joseph heard her say to him, lie with me time and again. She said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, this is a great response. Listen to what he says here. Behold, <laughs> because of me, My master has no concern about anything in his house, including you. 
and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. Notice in Joseph's response here next how grateful he is to God. He's talking about how Potiphar has given him this important responsibility. But notice how his response is a way of saying that God has given him this responsibility. Joseph knew that God put him there for a purpose, for a responsibility. So look at verse 9. How then, with that focus in mind of God giving him this responsibility, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin, next two words, against God? Joseph knew that all sin was against God. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to him day after day, verse 10, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Joseph knew what we all must, must, must know, uh, which is that sexual sin is sin against God. And of course we say, isn't all sin sin against God? Well, yes, of course, all sin is sin against God. But, but people have this sort of mistaken no, notion often uh, that, that the sexual sin of pornography is somehow uh, different because I'm not hurting anybody else but myself. That's a lie. That's deception. That's evidence of being self-deceived. 1 Corinthians 6.18 is a good verse for this. We'll look this up later. We won't have time to unpack it. 1 Corinthians 6.18. When we are engaging in sexual sin, we are deadening our hearts to hearing from God. That's what's going on in us. Listen, friends, even when Potiphar's wife kept pursuing Joseph day after day after day, he valued his holiness and purity before God as of greater consequence than listening to her, to having physical, temporary sexual pleasure that would result in a sin against God. If we give in to sexual sin like this, it becomes a pattern. We get, begin to get fuzzy signals from God. It's like we have a harder time hearing from God and distinguishing truth and lie. And what sustained Joseph here was his faithfulness to God's call, his plan for putting him here in a place of responsibility for the purpose of glorifying God. Joseph knew that well and took it to heart and lived as such. So when he has this temptation, he says, nope, I got too much important work to do. Too much important work to do. God's put me here for a reason. He knew that all sin, but here specifically sexual sin, is ultimately sin against God. That's the first thing we have to admit. The second is to acknowledge the primary consequence of sexual sin. And we'll see this in the life of Samson in Judges 16. The primary consequence of sexual sin is a hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. Turn to Judges 16 if you're not there yet. We're going to primarily look at verses 4 through 20. We'll jump into verse 1, but primarily look at 4 through 20. Long story short, Samson, strong dude Samson, was raised up by God to oppose the Philistines, the bad guys. That's why God gave him supernatural strength. That's why God gave him supernatural strength to lead his people against the Philistines. But he went astray because of the allure of sexual sin. And we'll see him as an example of the hardness of heart question. Follow along in Judges 16 to get an overview of how this happened here. Verse 1, jumping in there, says this. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. Now, the Bible doesn't just sort of accidentally include this 
detail in the first verse. It's saying from the beginning of the account of Samson, here's the kind of dude we're dealing with. This is where Samson's heart was. Jump down to verse 4. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. Delilah. Now, this is at least, Delilah is at least woman number three we know for sure. Uh, earlier in Judges, it alludes to the fact that it might, might have been, probably was more than just three. Uh, so, so he's got a bit of a reputation at this point, which is why, verse 5, the lords of the Philistines, who knew exactly what they were doing, came up to her and said to her, seduce him. <laughs> That's the plan. Two words. Seduce him. They knew how to get to Samson. They knew how to defeat him. They went after his Achilles heel because they knew he was morally weak. They knew that unlike Joseph, the call of God was not important enough for him. Seduce him, verse 5, and see where his great strength lies. And by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. You'll be set for life financially. So verse 6, Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had been lying in ambush and in her chamber, and when she, and when she had bound them with them, and she said to them, the men in the inner chamber, the Philistines, sorry, she bound him, ambush. She says to him, verse 9, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. So verse 10, Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you've mocked me. You've told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. Now, listen, you'd think, you'd think that at least one example, one instance of Delilah leading the enemy to your own house and having an awareness that something's amiss would have tipped him off, Right? I mean, like, like, who doesn't catch on at that point? Well, Samson obviously doesn't. Keep reading. Verse 11. He said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. The men lying in wait in an inner chamber came in and he snapped the ropes right off his arm like a thread. That was the second time. Here comes a third time. Verse 13, Delilah said to Samson, I, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. She, of course, is baiting him. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, Delilah's no dummy here. She says, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength is. Now, first of all, at this point, Samson should go, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> you're, ta- you're telling me I don't love you? What are you trying to do here? He's so delusional that he keeps right on with the bait. 
How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me, she says. You have mocked me these three times. You have not told me where your great strength lies. And she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him. So his soul was vexed to death. She's got him this time, verse 17. He told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head, began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his deep sleep and said, thinking he could do what he had always done, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. The next words are some of the saddest in all the Old Testament. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. The scriptures are teaching us a lesson here. Sexual sin. And I'm about to share a word that's a no-no in the Wakefield household at least. (laughs) Sexual sin will make you stupid. It just will. Sexual sin will make you D-U-M-B. In case the kids are around. That's the Bible lesson from today. (laughs) In pretty basic terms. Listen, Samson's not the only man (laughs) in history who has knowingly done something D-U-M-B or irrational in order to stay in bed with a woman, right? I mean, being delusionally in love with yourself and your own physical pleasure makes you dumb. The saddest part of this whole thing is verse 20, where it says, He did not know that the Lord had left him. He'd lost the Lord's blessing, And it wasn't just because the bad guys cut his hair. He was so delusionally in love with himself and his own physical pleasure and his own physical strength that he could no longer hear from God. Samson had lost sight of his mission. He had no personal vision for carrying out what God had for him because he was in love with his own pleasure. Listen, friends. Sexual sin is one of the ultimate forms of self-idolatry. And here's what idolatry does. It deafens us from hearing from God. That's a dangerous place to be. Scripture believes it's the most dangerous. Idolatry hardens our hearts. 1 Timothy 4 It says that the person who speaks lies has a a, a seared conscience. A seared conscience, which is a way of saying the truth of God can't get through that thick skull because it's fried. It's fried by sin. It's like an iron's placed on that person's heart and they can't hear from God anymore. Sin has scorched it. That's what patterns of sexual sin will do to your heart, friends. It'll harden it so you can't hear the truth of God. 
So what do we do? <laughs> Three and four. We stop rationalizing our sin. That's one of the steps. We have to stop rationalizing. Understanding the thought patterns uh, that are incorrect. I mean, listen, friends, the stakes are your soul. What hangs in the balance is too important for us to rationalize our way into temporary physical pleasure. I'm just going to basically list these as I did before. I was talking about Oreos, of course, before, but they apply to the ways that we rationalize sexual sin patterns. We say things like, I deserve this. It's my one weakness. I can handle this. We say things... We say things like, I can manage this and do, do something to, to take care of it and, and to cover it and to make sure nobody knows. Like if I just give enough flowers to my wife or, or if I'm just nice enough to some other people around me, that, that'll sort of cover, cover me. <laughs> we say things like, no one will ever know. It's just my situation. Nobody else knows how hard it is to be me. A seared conscience says, I don't even care. Like, I flat out don't care what this will do to me. Friends, the reality is that you cannot manage your sin. No one in the history of the planet has ever been able to manage their own sin. Scripture says, you won't be the first. And being a slave to sexual sin patterns in your life deceives us into thinking we're in this place where things are good, manageable, under control, when actually they're not. And it's like you think you're floating in the calm and cool waters of a tropical beach. Like there's the island. You're floating in this cool and calm water kind of environment. It feels good. It seems nice. It may even be beautiful. <laughs> But you're actually swimming. In here, your heart is swimming in a sea of sewage. That's what sexual sin does to you, deceives you. Sexual sin is swimming in an ocean. (laughs) You think it's safe, but there are actually sharks lurking all around you. You cannot outswim those sharks. You cannot manage sin. You must stop rationalizing if you're stuck in sexual sin patterns. The hope is number four. We must repent of sexual sin. We must repent of sexual sin. We'll just make passing reference here. We don't have time to unpack it. Second Corinthians 7.10 Second Corinthians 7.10 says that godly grief produces Repentance. Godly grief produces repentance. Meaning there is such a thing as human grief. Human grief says, I'm sorry that I did this. I'm sorry that I hurt you. I'm sorry that you misunderstood my intentions. Uh, That's not necessarily godly grief. That doesn't produce a change or wake us up to the consequences of our sin. That's just further rationalization. Godly grief produces a change in heart. Godly grief is what happens when you understand what your sin communicates about a personal lack of gratitude for what God has done for you in Jesus. Let me say that again. 
Godly grief is understanding the weight of our sin and what it says as a lack of gratitude for what God has done for us and Jesus. And the hope is this. When you repent, when godly grief produces repentance and your heart turns from sin toward God, He fills your heart with His love. Listen, friends, if your heart is filled with memories of sexual sin, if your mind is filled with pornography littering your brain, we're here today because there's hope. There's hope in Jesus Christ. What you need to do is repent. To turn from the lust that doesn't last to a Lord whose love lasts forever. Let's watch this, friends. I was introduced to it when I was nine years old, which at the time was the average age of introduction, but it's dropping quite uh, significantly since then. My name is Tyson Hodge, and I'm a male, which means I struggle with pornography, just like uh, the high percentage of most males, even Christian males. And I even know it's a, it's a growing percentage with females as well. So I, I dealt with pornography all the way into college. And um, it was, of course, a struggle. It's, it's becoming common knowledge that pornography affects the brain a lot like addiction. And it was an addiction that I really struggled with and, and couldn't get out of. Um, and uh, I kept it hidden because, of course, I was going to church and couldn't let people know. And I was going to youth group, and I had to look the part and play the part and make sure everything was, was good there. Um, and so I remember in high school really proactively trying to, to shake this addiction and trying to do it on my own and doing uh, everything I thought I needed to do to, to stop it. And it, it, only, it only stuck around, and it only got worse. And it wasn't until college that God gave me this kind of uh, vision that this this kind of um, foresight that if if I didn't if I didn't put a stop on this it was going to destroy my life and it was going to destroy my marriage and it was going to destroy my kids and it was going to just continue to wreak havoc and so really it was it was fear of that 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 godly fear that that um gave me the, the courage, the uh, desperateness to go and, and confess to somebody. So I, I found an accountability partner, uh, a person who I told everything to, I told him what I was doing, who uh, was able to help me. And it was a, a long fight to, to finally get free of it. Um, and what was really difficult what, what, what was really hard was, was feeling the isolation, feeling that I was in this alone and I couldn't let it out and just having to deal with it um, on my own. And that's exactly where Satan wanted me. 
that's exactly what he wanted me to believe so that I would keep it hidden, keep it concealed, and, and stay in that bondage that he had for me. So finally, where God came into the story was when I really believed his word and really believed in confession and that it was for me and that um, confession was necessary and uh, the body of Christ was necessary for me to, to get help in, in fighting the sin and overcoming what Satan had put me in, the, the bondage Satan put me in. So I, I choose to be I choose to be open and public with my with my struggle because one that gives uh, strength to my fight and helps me fight even stronger the temptation and, and to stay free. Uh, but two because I want to be able to communicate to those who are in the battle themselves and struggling on, uh, by themselves who are believing the lies of Satan that they have to do this on their own and they have to keep it when. When you, bring, when you bring it out and confess and seek accountability and help with the body of Christ, that's when freedom comes. A lot of times when Christians get together, <clears throat> it creates this environment. We're having to keep up outward facade prevents us from dealing with the sin that's inside. Tyson alluded to some of that in the video. And I say that to say, listen, (laughs) this isn't a perfect church. We're here. (laughs) But we're a body of believers that believes that grace is real. That confession actually works. That the gospel's not pretend. We believe there was actually a Jesus who in flesh and blood lived a perfect, sinless life to make available the freedom from the bondage that sin patterns keep you in. So we just want to say, this is a place where it's safe to say, I struggle with. We want to have that conversation with you and pray with you and become a place where that accountability for growth in Christ is real, where that confession that he alluded to in the video is something that actually takes place. Because when you bring that into the light, God can deal with your heart. So we want to, as we get ready to sing here, uh, we just want to say to you, this time of invitation is a public thing we do, yes, If today is the day where in the waters of baptism you say, I want to be a part of a family of believers and say Jesus is Lord, or you want to stand up as a baptized believer and say, I want to be a part of a fellowship of believers. Yes, that can happen now during this invitation. But on the inside, I know that some of you need to do business with Jesus. So this invitation isn't just a public thing. This invitation is a transaction opportunity between you and the Lord. Which means do business with Jesus, come to the cross, set aside the burden, take a step toward the liberty that is available in Christ.
as we stand, as we sing together.